Welcome to Who Owns the Stars, a podcast where two obsessives dedicate themselves to analyzing each episode of The Expanse. We will see how far we get. I'm one of your hosts, Kat, and with me is my very good friend, Nina. Hello! Welcome. So, what are we talking about today? We, we are... are... <laughs> oh, I guess no, please, I'll never take over. I was going to say that we are... Um... Just like last episode, we are going to be covering two episodes today, um, episodes three and four of season one, and then the next episode, it'll go back to normal. We'll do one for four, uh, one for five, one for six, et cetera, et cetera. But today is a double feature, and it's a good double feature, I would say. It is. These two episodes, I mean, I feel like if we had to choose episodes to cover mm-hmm. as two-parters... These are definitely the ones to do it with. So Yeah. But we're starting with season one, episode three, Remember the Can't, written by Jeff Woolnaw, Will Now. I think Will I like know. it's Woolnoff. I told you this before, but he um directed an episode of Riverdale. So I'm very excited about that. We love that. We love that. <laughs> and actually, he also wrote an episode, he wrote episode four of The Expanse as well. Of the and next episode? Yes, the next Whoa. episode. So he was doing double duty, which is probably why these two like blend together so well. Mm-hmm. Uh, additionally, if you're reading along. Oh, it was written these... by, sorry, wait, 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 this episode was written by Robin Veith, not to, not to forget her thunder as well. Yes, our girl Robin, one of the few women, women? behind the scenes that we see. She's a... No shade. Well, uh, one thing that's interesting, actually, like before we dive in, all of these writers and directors, um, if you watch like later episodes, I think they're all like executive producers now. So that's what Oh, that's super say. cool. Yeah, good for them. Moving on. Good for them. Um, if you are reading along, these episodes cover chapters 10 through 15, roughly, because, you know, not everything is one-to-one. But cha-chaing right past that, don't hold me to it, we can get into the episode. So, episode three, quick recap. The crew gets arrested like they did at the end of episode two by the Martian military. Are we call saying they got arrested or just, uh, you know, taken into custody? So. I mean, let's call it for what it is. Yeah. By the Martian military, uh, they are interrogated, immediately turn on one another, start to become suspicious of Naomi, especially when a stealth ship comes out of nowhere, apparently to rescue her. Hmm. So that's what's happening with our crew. Meanwhile, on series, there are riots breaking out, which Miller's ignoring in favor of searching for Julie, even though he's supposed to drop the case as directed by his boss. He meets our man, Anderson Dawes, an OPA heavy, and have Locke gets nailed to a wall. Poor man. I mean, that is rough. I wouldn't want it to be me. (laughs) Meanwhile... (laughs) Meanwhile, Avasarala is manipulating a friend who's a Martian diplomat. She ultimately clears Mars of any wrongdoing when she figures out that their stealth tech had nothing to do with the Kant's explosion. So, who do we want to start with? Um, 
there's a uh i think there's a lot to say for earth and the crew maybe not yeah. as much for for miller so so he can wait till the end <laughs> yeah he'll get what he you know what we yeah. have left to give <laughs> yeah so then do we want to jump into the crew let's do it all right so my thoughts just you know off the top initially i think it's so hilarious in the beginning as they are going on to the donager amos is just staring down each person that <laughs> passes. Yeah. and i really think like he really looks ready to fight and i'm sitting here like my man <laughs> on like a it's whole you, ship you against the entire what is this the navy Mm-hmm. The Marines? Yes. You have uh, less than negative chance of winning. I mean, maybe for like the first two or three. Yeah. But I can't give you much more than that. Yeah. But he, I mean, Amos was getting active for both of these episodes, honestly. It's, he was just, really ready to swing on anybody. For Naomi, which is so interesting. I, I feel like if episode two really was about them in this bubble of like how do we survive um this episode and i would say episode four because three and four really feel like one long episode and that's sort of one of my um like criticisms about this season is like how they did the pacing and like where do we Mm -hmm. end the story and how long it takes to tell the story three and four Really, if you watch them together, and I was watching them together for, to record this, and I, I forgot that, like, we had jumped an episode. Um, with these two episodes, you really see, like, their dynamics, the crew's dynamics kind of fall apart before they even have had a chance to be formed. Uh, because the previous episode, two was really only of, like, it was, like, the basic core of, like, okay, we can keep each other alive. But now they, you know, they have that opportunity to turn on each other and they kind of take it. Pretty quickly. Like, it doesn't take all that much. Amos and Naomi as a unit aside. Everybody else is quick to turn on Alex once they realize that, you know, he's welcome back to the military, sort of. They're quick to turn on Naomi because she's potentially OPA and tensions are running high and everybody's yelling at each other. And it's like, it's understandable, but it's also like, damn guys, we can't present a united front (laughs) even now, like here. Yeah. Uh, I did like the interrogations. Mm -hmm. I mean, we only saw Naomi's and Holden's. I thought Naomi's was really interesting in the way that it was acted. Mm-hmm. She has the opportunity to snitch Holden out, and she does not. Yeah. Which is actually interesting, considering the fact that everybody is turning on one another like this. Mm-hmm. She still chooses to keep what would be a very important piece of information, not only to the crew, but also to Mars, that, hey, Holden's technically the one that landed us where we are right now. Yeah, so much of what is interesting about Naomi is what we don't know about her, or we have yet to know about her. Right, because you really don't know what her motivation is for even keeping that information to herself. Because me, 
personally, <laughs> you don't want to get interrogated with me. I would have been, I would have been like shed. What did he say? He's like, I told them everything. I think I even made some, I was like, that would be me. I would exactly. never, I wouldn't cover for anybody else. It's but like, I don't know y'all. I'm not losing my fingernails for you. So yeah. Holden's interrogation is also funny. <laughs> Holden's interrogation was honestly hilarious to me. From the moment the interrogator started talking about his parents, he's oh, clearly yeah. irritated by it. And we get what is one of my favorite lines out of the show. Mother Elise had the whitest hips. <laughs> I love that. Three moms, five dads. But can you really imagine like you push a child down there, down, you know, your birthing canal <laughs> and he yeah. goes, well, she had that whitest hips. So, <laughs> like, like, come on, man, a little bit of respect for your mom. You know, um, just a tad. But he also just decides that he's going to take control of this interrogation and then just fails miserably. Yeah. This this episode, I think, is. A really interesting, I think, capsule of, like, how this show does backstories, which is to say that they they don't really tell you everything maybe as fast as other shows. Like, mm-hmm. okay, so at the end of Holden's interrogation, all we know about him is that he had a boatload of parents, something to do with Montana, um, and that he wanted to leave Earth. And usually that means And that, that- he washed out of the military. Yeah. <laughs> I can't forget that. Um, and revealing that much would mean that, you know, probably by the end of the season, we would have a better idea of, like, what all that, what went down. And I, you know, from what I remember, now that we've watched it, I don't think we learn that much more about it. I think it's, it's like, that, it, that level of ambiguity is what we get with him for a very long time. Mm-hmm. And I would say that's it- the same with... Naomi a little bit even though we don't learn too much about Naomi in this episode we learn more about like people's assumptions of her right I feel like honestly for most of the first season the information that we get about them feels a lot more intuitive than Mm -hmm. you know exposition which can be fun but I don't remember how I felt about it watching it the first time I probably might catch it I do. I wonder if, like, people, if you would feel frustrated about how little you know about them. Yeah. But on the other hand, there's every about two episodes, something big happens for both the crew and you as the audience to react to. Yeah. I feel like there's enough material, like, happening in the present that give a sense of who these characters are. And what we really just miss out on is, like, how they became those people. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was also going to say about Naomi and, and her interrogation um, I, I don't remember if you brought this up in the second episode but another sort of like invasion of space kind of happens here um, you were talking about in episode 2 when she shuts down the I don't know ship controls I don't know how ships work and mm-hmm. Holden like freaks out and he kind of like gets in her space right. um, and she doesn't move and then in this episode uh, when she's getting interrogated, uh, Lopez, um, like, slides his hands onto her, like, so slightly. Oh, God, yes. Yeah. Oh, 
Like, and he, he's, she's the only one he does it to because he doesn't do it to Holden. And I bet he doesn't do it to Amos or, or Oh, Alex you know or he didn't do it to Amos. Yeah. It was like, oh, it was so disgust. And it's like, oh, he's only taking off her handcuffs. But it's like, you know what it was trying to imply. And I was, oh, I was like. It was such it. a power. It was really such a power play and really like establishing dominance. Yeah. Very early on. And like the implication is, look, we can do whatever we want here. Yeah. And this show doesn't like go too deep into gender politics as it does on like, I don't know, class and, and race mm-hmm. to a sense. But it's stuff like this that's like, oh God. Like it's very intentional. Um and I think right. this is sort of the extent of like how they address uh gender in the in the twenty third century. And they're just oh I hate it so much. Ugh. Yeah, that was not fun. But I think about the interrogations as a whole, I think they play into another theme that's really hit heavy in season one. You like people existing as a sum of their actions, the picture that's painted of you mm. as a result. And, and it tends to be devoid of the context of whatever situation you were in, in whatever you did. Yeah. So... Naomi is a belter. Naomi may or may not have ties to the OPA. So everyone thinks that now Naomi's a sleeper agent. Mm -hmm. And I think it also tells you a lot about the people who are painting that picture of you. Mm -hmm. Because Mars, to Mars, all belters basically are OPA or they are some kind of criminals or troublemakers. Mm-hmm. And they really want to be able to blame the cant on the OPA. So here's Naomi sitting duck for it. Holden looks like a potential terrorist because Holden got kicked out of the military and he could have resentment against Earth and authority. Yeah. I mean, and I think he does have issues with authority, but I don't know. To what extent we really dive into them. So mm-hmm. it's not necessarily <laughs> worth doing an essay on. But well, I think with, they're there. With uh with Naomi, I remember a scene in, in this I think it's in this episode where when we're talking to Captain Yao, Teresa Teresa Yao, that's her name. Uh, yes, big up on her by Yoon. Oh, a legend. Um she there's a scene with her and Holden and they're talking about what to do next. And and I think they say that their plans are basically to to blame Naomi, to say that like mm-hmm. Naomi was responsible for blowing up um, the camp. And that's such an interesting scene because on one hand, from the Martians' perspective, they're they're basically saying if Mars is accused of doing uh, this terrible action, war will start uh, between I don't know. I think I think the implication is between Mars and the Belt. Um, but then inevitably Earth and Mars, whereas right. to them, blaming Naomi is no problem, which is really interesting because then there are absolutely implications there. Like, why would the OPA blow up? One, why would if Naomi was part of the OPA, why would the OPA blow up one of their own people? Um, and then you go down that route. But then for the and Martians, why would they deprive their own people of, you know, water? Right. Right. And but I guess for the Martians, that's almost a benefit to them because it's turning the belt uh, on each other 
um, having them blame who they believe are the true enemy uh, this entire mm-hmm. time. Um, so it's, it's, but the, you know, seeing how quickly they basically threw her under the bus and Holden points this out, right? Like blaming someone who's pretty much innocent until proven guilty. Um, it really shows, uh, to what extent, or, uh, do they value other lives, I guess. And I think it also plays into something that we established last episode, which is this far out in space, who has the authority to enforce due process Mm, because Holden continues to push this idea of, oh, you can't just do that. But I mean, they can't and they're telling you they're going to. Yeah. Holden, Holden's whole thing is like, you know, I need a lawyer. I need a representative, blah, blah, blah. And everyone's like, this is not. (laughs) That's not how it works, boo boo. Who are you going to tell? Like if we, you know, torture you illegally or something. They don't have like, that. Who's going to do something about it? Nobody. Right. Like, knowing Avasarala as much as... Because I think in the next episode is is when uh, everybody on Earth sort of finds out that um, Holden and his crew are on the Doniger. You know, as much as Avasarala is like, oh, they have one of our own, we need to take them. I'm sure she'd be the kind of person where it's like, well, if a sacrifice has to be made, then a sacrifice oh, yeah. has to be made. Um, Quickly. So, Holden's belief that his life has value is not always going to be true. And I, frankly, I think that he only even has that view because of his background, having grown up. I mean, not just the fact that he has eight parents doting on him, but but just the fact that he is an earther and he has grown up whether he realizes it in a very privileged way because Naomi was not shocked when they tried to pin it on her. And I don't think most belters would be because they already understand that in this world, people that have power see them as disposable. And that's kind of inconceivable to him. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. <sighs> I do have a question. Yes. We hear Alex ask, who stands to gain if Mars and Earth get into a throwdown? And I think we kind of discussed this before. Mm-hmm. But my question is, would the belt really benefit from this? Because he says it in the context of them suspecting Naomi as a member of the OPA. Mm-hmm. Like I- Traditionally speaking, don't marginalized groups just get used as pawns and sacrificial lambs in these kind of conflicts? Right, like, you know, they make the direct comparison to um, a Cold War, I think, in episode two or episode, or in this episode, Avasarala says, this is, you know, we're moving past a Cold War, and the whole thing that happened during, you know, our Cold War were these sort of quote-unquote proxy wars, um, Mm -hmm. which say, yeah, it was was cold between um, the U.S. and the Soviets, but it wasn't cold to these other countries that essentially got caught up in it and and faced real violence as a result of that. So, I yeah, it's a good point because from the Earth and Mars perspective, you know, they're really thinking like as long as Earth and Mars are preoccupied with each other, the OPA will rise and gain power. Um, whereas if you, I believe what the Belters will say, and I don't know if they said it already, but as long as Earth and Mars fight, they will 
blame the belt essentially so it's like it's almost like the opposite it's it's like the belt will not have no eyes on them they'll have all eyes on them um and and that's i don't know just different perspectives yeah i think like it really alex is our only window into how mars thinks mm-hmm. on a regular person's level because yes he is former military but we can see he is not like these other martians Mm -hmm. so i think for the time being he is really our window into how they see the world and i don't want to say outside of a military context because they really are a military nation yeah but as someone who's maybe not active military, how yeah. they analyze things. And it really feels like Mars sees themselves as more of an underdog than they really are. Yeah. Like, as a formal, they, they really see themselves as, like, a former colony, even though so much right. of their work is, is quote-unquote, decolonizing, um, which obviously has a different meaning versus, like, the belt decolonizing. But mm-hmm. they're not an underdog. They have... Earth has age, Earth has, you know, time, experience, but the, there's more than enough references that the Martians, you know, outpace Earth, essentially. Right. They don't want it with them. They don't. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, and I like, we're going to see more of this idea of how Mars sees themselves. I think we'll discuss it more in the next episode, but... Mm-hmm. There are threads of it here, like when Alex says that. And it's fun to talk about, but we'll get there. What I do want to talk about is the confrontation between the crew post-interrogation. Yes. Especially when everyone turns on Naomi with ease, despite her having (laughs) done like the most out of everybody to keep them alive. Right. But... It's really interesting to watch how it works because, like, in the beginning, when everyone is starting to question her, Amos starts out behind her. Mm-hmm. But she can, she's not really at least consciously thinking about where he is, but he's very aware of where she moves to. Whenever she moves forward, sideways, anything... He's like right behind her. So he sees where this is potentially going. And he's just ready for it. He's really like, (laughs) I wish the fuck you would. I love that, uh, you know, when they're arguing before Naomi comes in, he immediately like switches personalities. And he's just so, oh my God, I really do. I mean, you know me, I'm, I'm big on the Amos and and Naomi um, dynamic, but I I love there's a lot of intimacy in the way that they interact. Right. And it's, it's almost like, basically, they're the childhood friends. Um, And I love that that's being brought to the to the crew because these are essentially all strangers. Mm-hmm. Um, but that switch, I it's it's so fascinating to me. He's he it's no question that Amos would defend Neo. Even when um I forget either Shed or Alex is like you know what are you gonna do now that she's she could be OPA, and Amos is like who cares? Like what does that have to do with me? Um, which really, <coughs> you know, which also I think kind of reflects Amos's view about uh 
these dynamics and and the politics of the system, which is that Amos isn't really concerned if something is coming from Earth or Mars or the belt. Um, he's, you know, we'll hear this in a few episodes, but it's 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 about his who his family is and who right. he needs to follow. And so his goal is really at the end of each day, he and Naomi need to survive it. Yeah, exactly. And he's ready to protect her, even if it's against like the people that are technically supposed to be on their side. Yeah. And it's really interesting to watch it play out. But I mean, do we have anything else that we would like to know about the crew? With the crew? Um, yeah. Let's see. Let's think. Let's think. Because I mean, because these episodes kind of flow together, mm-hmm. discussing them separately, some of the meat happens in episode four. Right. So let's just dive into episode four while we're here. Do we want to continue talking about Naomi and Amos since we're already here? Yeah, let's do it. Then let's fast forward to when <laughs> Naomi and Amos are about to die. <laughs> Yes, on the Donager. It's one of my favorite scenes out of the entire show. Like, when she mentions there was someone she wanted to say goodbye to. Oh, yes. Oh, my God. She's saying this now on November 25th, 2020. Boy. Now you're giving them the date we recorded. <laughs> because if this, if this shit comes out, like, forever after... <laughs> They can handle it. Oh man! Oh man! I guess we it's all so we can good. say is no, just like, pay attention to that line. I mean, yes, most definitely pay attention to that line. It'll take a while for it to pay off, but when it does, but baby, when it does, Ooh, girl. But like his reaction, it makes me feel like this is a level of vulnerability that. I mean, it is because he clearly didn't know that there was someone in her past that she was still holding on to. Yeah. So this is a level of vulnerability that they've never really shown to one another. And then he takes her hand and Wes Chatham plays that so well. Both of them, both Wes and Dom play the scene so well. Yeah. He takes her hand like he's really not sure if it's the right thing to do or not. And it reminds you he really isn't sure because Naomi is the one who he takes his cues from and she's not giving him any at this moment. His whole face. In, like, he keeps in, looking back and forth between yes. her hand and her face. Mm-hmm. And he's really, he's like not sure if, if this is an appropriate response or not. And he just does it anyway because maybe that's what he thinks Naomi would do. Maybe that is just his instinct saying, this is how I can comfort her. Yeah, it's so sweet. Um, and then I, I love that he, you know, she says, I, I didn't even get to say goodbye. And then Amos, even as he takes her hand, he what he says is like really heartwarming. He says, you know, you were always trying to do the right thing. And, and thank you for that, because as we know, or maybe we're jumping, but Amos really struggles with knowing what the right thing is. And I think maybe having watched you know the show up to its current point now and rewatching the scene i feel like it makes that scene have so much more weight because of how much we know about amos and how he thinks about doing good and what his moral compass is like and all those things it's really just touching to see so early on in the show 
him sort of paying his dues back to Naomi, who guided him for so long. It's so good. And like, and it also, I mean, you don't see Amos being this. I feel like we're saying Amos's name too much. (laughs) (laughs) You you don't see Amos being this, like, this is not what you would expect from him based on what you've seen in the prior three episodes. He just killed Alex like 30 minutes ago. Exactly. So, but it's great. We love that. It's a great, this is a really strong two-parter for them in general, just in the way they interact with one another. They're very in sync. For instance, like when, you know, rest in peace, Shed. (laughs) Um, When he gets his block knocked off, they react so immediately. They know exactly what to do. And the way that they're moving, they trust that the other person knows how to react without them having to say anything. Right. Versus Alex, who... Is, is still in shock, essentially. Um, exactly. Who doesn't even, who can't even process what's just happened. And I I imagine for the actors, they don't know these things ahead of time. And so I, you know, I would probably give credit to the directors and, you know, whatever producers were on set that day um, to say, like, you know, you get to work, but you kind of have to stay where you are because X, Y, Z. Because I, I feel like at this point, the actors don't know that much about the characters um they know about as much as we do basically which is not much (laughs) but do we have anything left for naomi and amos as a pairing uh i mean i love them i wish the best for them i uh have a shrine for them and i'm ready to take a picture of it and send it to them i'm sure (laughs) they'd love that Absolutely. But another huge thing in these two episodes is... Holden? I mean, yeah, Holden. I was going to talk a little bit about Mars, but we can definitely talk about your man, Holden. My man? I was going to say that Holden and Mars are quite connected. (laughs) They are. They are. So let's talk about both. It really breaks my heart a little bit every time someone who is not from Earth shows interest in it. Mm-hmm. Um, at some point, Holden is taken to, I don't know, what do you call it? The bridge where the captain uh, is? Yeah. Whatever. I don't know how spaceships work. You would think that, you know, as much as we brag about having rewatched this show, we would have a better grasp and you would be wrong. The one thing so- I absolutely do not know about this show is specs. Any, like, engineering skill, none of that it has stayed in my head. I Don't any- ask me about the science, the physics. It took three or four rewatches to really understand what spin the drum meant. Right. We just so. found out what spin the drum means. <laughs> we should edit this part out. No, I know so we sit here like, oh, my God, you guys are so stupid. And I'll take We're keeping that. that in. You know why? You know why? Because there are plenty of people who care about that stuff, and that's fantastic for them. And our job is to care about the story, to care about the character, to care about the artful intimacy at which these characters interact with each other. And if I have to forego some specifications or math to do that, then I will. And everybody will just have to deal with it. And as someone who cheated their way through physics, I completely agree. <laughs> I <love> but 
Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't realize I was dealing with a fucking scientist. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But back to Mars and Holden. Um, Lopez asks him if he misses Earth. And Holden kind of tosses off this response like, well, if I did, I would go back. He says, absolutely the fuck not. I do not miss Earth. (laughs) Which I do think, I don't know if do we want to talk about it here or later this kind of apathy mm. that we see people who leave earth to go out into space seem to have for it we'll talk about it's it. not even that they actively dislike it it's they just really don't seem to care yeah let's talk like about- so we've seen julie's messages right mm-hmm. she does not seem interested at all in returning to earth because for one thing, she actively does recognize how Earth treats belters and the impact that that has on space. Mm-hmm. Then we have Holden, who is not as invested in the belt as Julie is. So we would have to question, what is his reasoning for just simply not caring about his home? Yeah. And I feel like it's one of those situations where someone doesn't really realize what they had yeah and so when you see somebody coveting it it's like it doesn't fucking matter to you (laughs) well i I guess i'm i'm i still honestly to this day don't totally understand like what made holden leave like i understand on a i think in episode three you know holden explains why he left the u.s navy marine yes army marine navy we're gonna use it interchangeably you know what we mean uh left the army um because he didn't he he didn't want to be the boot i don't know if we were gonna save that quote till later but like we have a motivation for that but i i never quite understood why maybe not why holden left because we will learn that in a few in an episode or two but i didn't totally understand why he had so much disdain for Earth. And I don't think I still understand why he has so much, like why him specifically, not why anyone would, but what for him was that um, flipping point, I guess. I would really like to understand it as well. And like, we will find out more about Holden's backstory and his family later. So that's something to theorize at that point. I feel like we kind of have. Mm. And I feel like it's maybe something that we could potentially discuss at a later point. All right. All right. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I'm really genuinely not sure. I wish that we could get more information on Holden's relationship to Earth. And when I went to reread Leviathan Wakes so we could record this, I feel like I really didn't get much insight into that but i also don't think that he showed the same kind of disdain in the book that he seems to show and that he seems to give us in the show mm, yeah but i mean i would actually like to talk about his quote um we've been stepping on earthers have been stepping on the necks of belters for a hundred years i didn't yes. want to be the boot let's talk about it it's a great quote it's one of holden's strongest quotes mm-hmm And it's this specific wording is something that gets called back to a couple more times. So I feel like it's one of the quotes that we could probably say is one of the definitive statements in that 
it sums up the relationship or the power dynamics between Earth and the belt. But it also tells us more about who Holden is as a person. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't want to be a bad guy. He wants to do good things. He doesn't want to harm people. But I think that he's also not going to actively support the belt. He just doesn't want to be someone who's actively harming them either. He's pretty... um liberal i don't know if that's you know okay to no say. i think you're using no i think you're using that appropriately i you know he's um what 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 is this thing they say where they say you know the problems are bad but the the things that cause those problems i i don't have much of an opinion on i think is really where holden stands um mm-hmm. i think holden is in, you know we're only like four episodes in so this is a deep analysis for a character we've barely learned much about yet but Holden, as we know him, and I would say in these first four episodes, is someone who kind of operates from a sort of uh, singular point of like justice. So it's like if he sees something wrong, then that's wrong. But right. I don't think he quite has developed um, the sense of like the structures behind those problems. So when he sees something wrong, it's wrong no matter who's doing it and who it's happening to. Um, right. Whereas... I would say maybe for someone like Naomi, that wouldn't be the case. For her, it would, you know, depending on who is being done wrong, I think she would have a different take on it. Um, and I don't say this to like slam Holden. I just, I'm, I'm trying to just think about how to best describe his worldview. I think I've also called him like a centrist in the past, but very I much. I think that that is also, yeah, a very apt description. Yeah, very much about um, um, keeping the peace, I think. I think that's his perspective. And that is something that I think connects him to Avasarala, who we'll, we'll see more go into this idea. Um, even in this this episode and, and, you know, these two episodes, I think she kind of touches on this. It's really about maintaining the balance, but not going, not upsetting that balance, even if upsetting right. that balance might ultimately be a net good. Um so I don't think Holden thinks in those terms. I think Holden thinks in terms of like you hurt someone and they are like that is a bad decision or that is a bad right. thing that you've done. And I don't think his analysis extends beyond that. I think that that's a really good way of summing it up. I completely agree. And we did get off track because we were originally <laughs> supposed to be talking about, you know, Lopez and Holden. Well, yes. I mean, there's so, a return- lot return. I mean, yeah. (laughs) To return back to if I did, I would go back. Lopez in that moment, I think, is trying to make a genuine connection with Holden. He wants to hear about Earth. And Holden had that opportunity to tell him about experiences that Lopez understands that he's probably never going to have. So from the perspective of people who have never breathed non-manufactured air or seen the sky on a pretty day, it comes across as someone who just never appreciated what they had, which is confirms the image in his mind that he already had of Earthers. For all we know, Holden is the first like civ- Earther civilian that he's dealing with. Yeah. And I think that's and- an interesting take. I 
it's one of those things where I don't um I don't fault the Martians and the Belters for believing like thinking like that. But mm-hmm. as we'll see, uh, I think more in season two, I think that's a kind of simplistic like it's it's not like an easy translation right. of like privilege, right? It's not like being from Earth um is equivalent to like being wealthy. Being born a billionaire. Yeah, you know, having money or or being born into a race that is prioritized and valued more than ever. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. it's well, well actually as I'm talking it out, it's I would kind of compare it to being from America. Um where it's like you are perfectly uh well within your right to think about America as an entity and like the power it holds over other nations and mm-hmm. the consequences of that power. But there are certainly people within America who suffer within that country because of those right. those countries' domestic policies. And that's how I kind of think about Earth as like, and maybe that's American-centric of me, but I that is my easiest frame of reference. It's like, I see, you know, because people from other countries will say this all the time, oh, well, in America, it's more free or, or whatever. Um, and I think that's a certainly... There is certainly evidence for that perspective. Oh, yeah. But, but you know, it would be pretty uh, simplistic to, to not talk about everything going wrong within the country. I guess I'll just leave it at that. No, absolutely. And maybe to cut hold in some slack, he has that, he may have that understanding and that's why he doesn't, seem to think all that highly of earth yeah yeah so you know we can work we can be a little harsh on holden and i can tell you right now we continue season two it's gonna get worse so (laughs) (laughs) we and holden me and holden season two season four we're not buddies so but for now he's doing his best he's doing his best um another quote that I did like is when you live your whole life under a dome even the thought of an ocean seems impossible mm. and in the context of Mars working to essentially recreate Earth at least as you know an ecosystem nature etc cetera, etc cetera, Earth is a paradise that Earthers didn't have to work for and that's where you know, Martian's kind of superiority complex seems to come from. Mm-hmm. So when Lopez goes into this diatribe about handouts, it sounds very familiar. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I for just, them, I- we're trying, like, we're trying to, we are earning our paradise the way right. that... We'll see this, especially in season two. Martians kind of seem to cling to the dream of Mars. Yeah. Almost as a religion, the way that people see the afterlife in heaven. Or for anyone who grew up being forced to go to Sunday school, (laughs) this is their, you know, 40 years wandering in the desert before they get to the promised land. And it's very interesting to see that play out in such a very literal sense. Yeah. Um, and he also, at at the end of his 
monologue, which I want to note, they're playing the most unsettling music while he talks. I really saw him as like a villain. And I forget right? he's like, he's he's not really a total villain. He ends with Earth is over. Yeah. And it's like, does he mean like Earth is a declining empire whose influence is waning? Or is it more so he has this understanding that one day Mars and Earth are going to go to war and Earth is not going to come out on top? Either or, both. But they have a couple of interactions which are really interesting to watch play out because despite this little back and forth that they had, I do think he ultimately decides that Holden is a decent guy once the Donagers attack. Yeah. Because this critical hit occurs, somebody gets injured and his gun falls on the floor near Holden. Oh, I love that part. Right? Like the camera lingers on it, then Lopez eyes it, and he watches Holden. Holden and is Hol- unaware that Lopez is watching him. Go ahead. No, I was going to say, and Holden doesn't even think twice. Like, there's exactly. no shot of Holden even having to make the decision of, like, get the gun or help the man. It doesn't even, you know, register to him. Like, it's just instinctive. Somebody's hurt, so I'm going to go over there. Mm-hmm. And my, this is actually someone who technically has some sense of authority over him because he is a prisoner. Mm-hmm. So, ultimately, I don't know if I would have made the same decision Holden did. <laughs> but, you know, I commend him nonetheless. Well, I guess the way I would think about it is, like, if you do get the gun, right, then what do you do? You're fighting, like, 20 people in a room alone. And exactly. then you got to get out. Rap. And then you and by the time you step out, they've already called everybody else. Right. And then you're dead and probably the whole crew too. So So Holden made the right choice. Oh, absolutely. I didn't have like more interesting things to say. I just really like like that uh conversation between Lopez and Holden. Mm-hmm. Um and just I realized this is really the only window we get into the Martians pretty much for the entire season. Um, As much as I like, I think I say this, but this season is really about the belt and earth. And, Mm -hmm. you know, this is really the only time that Martians get their say. Um, And so it's just so interesting to see how like desperate they are essentially. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and how much they, clearly want to be earth and see that as like a weakness of theirs but also like a goal to strive toward oh yeah it's fascinating and when lopez dies at the end of the episode he does have a great line oh yeah it would have been nice to see um finally see an ocean on mars yeah that's great i i think anything really with mars i it's hard to say much because so much of what makes Mars interesting, like, doesn't happen yet. We can't talk about it. Yet. And I don't, I'm not even talking about, like, you know, next season. I'm talking about, like, the long game. And I mm-hmm. say this as someone who maybe hasn't read the, I'm not talking about, like, book plots, I guess. I mean, just, like, in terms of what's presented to us, in terms of the dream of Mars over the, mm-hmm. over the, um, the four seasons that are currently out. Um, it, just gets more complex with every season, which is so interesting. It really does. I do have a few more notes just about, like, the crew. hmm I mean, we've noted that this is the point where 
their distrust is at its highest. But alternatively, they do have moments where they seem to be pretty united. I mean, even though everybody is suspicious of Naomi, Holden, when he is apart from the crew, he's still advocating for them. Yeah. Like, consistently. And Alex does have an opportunity to sell them out, even though we don't see his interrogation or see him interact. He probably could have maneuvered a way out for himself and sold the rest of them out and still chose not to. I'm not going to say much about Amos because he did threaten to kill all of them. So, But Shed does help Alex through his panic attack. And yeah. when the when That was sweet. It was. And then he died. But it and was then nice. he died. It was a nice full circle because it was Holden who helped Shed with his panic attack in episode two. So, And then he just, paid it forward. Yeah. But... Um, additionally, when they're arguing about who's going to be knocked out to conserve oxygen, Amos is already thinking far enough ahead about how he's going to take care of one or both Naomi and Alex. Yeah. And he says, I can carry you. You can't carry me. Because like the we don't have a moment where when Alex is unconscious, Naomi and Amos discuss leaving him or anything like that. Yeah, it doesn't become like a, you know, every man for themselves kind of thing. Right. Which it had potential to go that way because of how they had been arguing. That could have easily been a scene where, you know, that is what they intended to do. And then they, Alex essentially has to prove his worth to stay on with Naomi and, and Amos. So it's interesting that they didn't go that direction. And I it actually there's a line right before Alex gets knocked out where he says like I want to wake up, um so he still has that anxiety but it's interesting that they didn't play the scene as like them at odds with each other but rather how can they all make it out of this alive exactly, and even like even with making it all out alive together Naomi is actually surprised that Holden comes back for them yeah. Which we as the audience aren't because we've already seen him continually show concern for them whenever he's apart from them. Which I do want to know is something that feels like it gets more emphasis in the books. Mm. Where whenever Holden is apart from the crew or the ship, he's mostly thinking like, how do I get back to them? Mm -hmm. But it's very sweet. And the last thing that I actually have to say about them is that maneuver where they're running off the Doniger and onto, what's it called? The Tachi? The, yeah, the Tachi. Um, That little maneuver where Holden hooks himself to Naomi, kicks her into the air, and then turns off, turns on his mag boots. I felt like I loved it. It was cool to see. Successful Gwen Stacy maneuvers. (laughs) But it would have been interesting to me if Naomi had been the one to do that. Because it feels like a very belter solution. Mm -hmm. But then I thought about it more. And it feels like the solution of anyone who has been, like, very well trained in space. Yeah. And, you know, knows how to employ the buddy system. Almost like it's something they've, they've done already. Right. It's probably something that he's practiced. 
But that is the crew. I'm done with the Some crew. fun episodes. A um, lot of it. I would say this is the most visually interesting thus far. Yeah. Episode four with, you know, the lighting. Um, Beyonce did say no blue light on black girls, but <laughs> we've already talked about that. <laughs> have we? we? I don't think we actually have. About the poor lighting for Naomi <laughs> season one? Maybe, wow. maybe not. Well, what, it is uh, what it is. It certainly improves, and I it appreciate does. that. But it takes a minute to get there. <laughs> now, I this is something that doesn't, I feel like, happen too often. I feel like we're going to have more to say about Earth than we will about series. Oh, yeah, I agree. Yeah. So we can move on down to them. So Avasarala, we meet her friend, Frank, who is a diplomat to Mars for Earth. He comes back home for a while. And she plays the shit out of him. Yeah. <laughs> I like I think that she genuinely does care about him. Yeah. But Avasarala is also someone who's going to use whatever is at her fingertips to get what she needs done. But we let me back up because we do open with Avasarala, Admiral Souther, and my man Aaron, right? Trying to parse Holden's broadcast. And I think this plays right back into trying to understand who someone is based on whatever actions that they've taken devoid of context. We see Souther is a loyal military man who wants to dismiss Holden entirely because he was kicked out of the Navy. Mm-hmm. Aaron Wright thinks that because Holden was part of the Navy at all, he's still valid in some way because he, at some point in time, wanted to do his duty to Earth and the video could be Holden's way of doing that, absolving Earth or letting Earth know that Mars is up to something. And Avasarala really doesn't care about any of that. She's getting down to the nitty gritty for her, which is more focused on Holden's motivation. And interestingly, it feels like Avasarala is a little more aligned with Aaron right here. Mm-hmm. When she says Holden has no reason to lie because Ceres is, Ceres is our station, the key to the belt. With those resources, Mars could finally cut the cord to Earth. So she doesn't. She seems to think of Holden as potentially more calculating than I think Aaron Wright did. But ultimately, they're both going, yeah, he's an earther. He's still looking out for us. Right. And those lines could easily be disconnected from one another. But I think we have to consider why she believes he has no reason to lie. Because there's two ways to read it. Like, he has no reason to lie because he's from here. And then the assumption that he believes in Earth first. and. Two, he has no reason to lie because I don't see how an Earther would gain from any of this. Yeah. It's really a, like, it's really a manipulator's, like, standpoint. (laughs) She's like, she believes he's this, like, devious man. And she's like, but how would this play into his endgame? And meanwhile, Holden's like, I, like, have one brain cell. Exactly. I mean, it play also plays back into you learn more about 
the person who's painting the picture mm-hmm. because you're learning about their mindset. They're projecting how they see the world onto someone else. Right. And it's interesting that even though um, Avicerala and Aaron Wright agree more on, on like how they perceive Holden versus Souther, Souther and Aaron Wright agree on what to actually do. Because um, mm-hmm. Avicerala is a bit of a... Um, I wouldn't call her a war hawk because she she doesn't want war as mm-hmm. as we as we understand but she is sort of the first to be like we need a show of power we always need a she's show she's very of power. authoritarian mm-hmm. yeah but it's a great scene and i actually really enjoy avasarala's scenes with aaron right more now than i think i did the first time around just seeing how they interact with one another and seeing how they think about things yeah because they tend to they tend to believe the same things but they tend to like you said disagree on an action plan yeah and that will be their fatal flaw um i really like since we're talking about avasarala i really i think it's the end of the third episode it might be the end of the fourth episode but when all the DeGraff stuff gets exposed, essentially, and Frank gets fired, that final scene between him and Avasarala is, like, one of my favorites, I think, in the entire season. Um, it's just so, like, it's such a good summation of who Avasarala is as a person. Mm-hmm. Even if you, even if you're, you know, ignore Frank's sort of story about her, even her, the way she's acting in that scene, right? Like, this is just after he's been fired. Um, he's been disgraced. His, you know, his life goals are essentially down the drain. And after she hears all that, she's she kind of thinks that she can fix it with, like, a bottle of wine. Um, and that he'll just, you know, suck it up. Kind of fall back in line. Yeah. And and that's really who Avasarela is. And it's almost it's it's a cool it's an interesting weakness because it's it's a complete lack of ability to perceive this man as someone who she's hurt emotionally like to mm-hmm. see him as someone that she's broken trust in um because i she, i don't think she values that she doesn't value like she values people for what they can give her but not right. what she can give them and so right. it, I don't think it literally registers to her that what she did to Frank is almost unforgivable. Um, and so to watch her kind of pers- like process that is is fascinating. And then you have to add in Frank's whole story, um, which is uh, that he's he's sort of then you have to add in Frank's, Frank's whole story where he's talking about her as a child and and like the sort of game that she would play with all of them. And the understanding that he gained, which was very, you know, not to bring up Game of Thrones, but it felt very Game of Thrones. It's like, oh, this incident when she was a young child was going to define the rest of her life. Like, let's calm down. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, it, it was an interesting, it, it did relate to the situation, which is that she would do anything to win. And he was saying, right. that's what killed your father, which is a very um, uh, big statement to make. Yeah, you know, it makes me worry for her life. Um, so it's just it's just a great scene. I just I love it. And and then he on top of that, I'm remembering he's also talking about the Martians. Mm-hmm. Um he says, you are know, are we doing it? Are we talking about it? 
Oh, absolutely. Let's go. Mars um, still dreams and we had a garden and we paved over it. Yes. It's just, ugh. I mean, and you talked about the dream of Mars. That's here as well. Um, it's It's so fascinating that Earth is really... When we think about perception, Earth is really perceived as a superpower because of what it was, um, mm-hmm. whereas Mars is perceived as a superpower because of what it will be or what it could be. Woo! Say it again. Say it one more time. Um, <laughs> you know, past is present. Uh, the future is just around the corner. It's um, Earth is over, as Lopez says. It's it's really. About- I think we just answered the question, girl. <laughs> um about about what why holden left trying to fi- trying to figure out exactly what lopez means by earth is over yeah you just answered it oh you know i just try my best but um mars is the future i think is like the idea of this and it and that idea is so strong that even someone like frank de graf who is not in it for mars for the you know for the power or to have one over Earth, it's because he loves Mars. He's he genuinely, like, I, I think the whole thing was that he wanted to retire there with his husband. Yep. Um, and even him, he's, he's, he's basing all of this on a dream. And this idea of a dream is so, such a, like, strong storyline, like, for the rest of the show, I would say. And it's just fascinating to see the seeds of it planted in this. It's just, you know, it's a really testament. It's a really good testament to the writers, both on the show and in the books of like having these ideas in season one where they don't know where it's going to go, but just really like coming back to them season after season after season. Um, I'm really like, you know, as I'm saying this, I'm obviously thinking about season four in particular. Um, Me too. But I think like, as you say that I'm, thinking about one of the main plots right and And it's almost like history repeating itself right there's a there's a character in season four um not a main character i guess for those of you who are who are who have watched the show already but that that sort of um takes what he's made and is betting it on a dream um and that's just the martian mentality that all of this will have been worth it everything we have done will have like will lead to something um and i think that's what makes lopez's last line so much more heartbreaking it would have been nice to see an ocean on mars he doesn't get to see the dream of mars but he has this belief that what he's done has helped um it's just depressing and that like and he's okay dying knowing that he was in some way part of building that and that's i mean it's very sad but it's very interesting to watch play out. Yeah. And even as we talk about Frank DeGraff's love of Mars, he is saying this to Ava Sorala, who is a big proponent of putting Earth first. Right. So when he says that, he does kind of expose himself because I genuinely believe that he believes that. But... He's sitting here with a high-ranking Earther politician, and he's essentially parroting Martian propaganda. Yeah. And I don't think that that's something that he bears in mind, because for him, he's just sitting with a friend. Yeah. And maybe but Abbas Sarala really never turns off. Yeah. 
that's a good way to put it. But interestingly, even when he goes over to have lunch or dinner, whatever, with Avasarala and her husband, he seems a little antsy as his husband tells them about the retirement plans on Mars. Yeah. And I do think she makes a very pointed statement that's like, I think you like them too much. Yeah. It feels like a warning. Mm. Like earth first means earth first. And if he's sharing things, if he is ready to dedicate his life to Mars and he is sharing things with Mars, then his dedication is brought into question. When she says he did what I thought he would, which is, I mean, to back up, she gave him a little information about stealth ships potentially coming from Mars to do something from um, to the can't. He immediately runs back to Mars and they start checking their stealth ships and counting to make sure nothing's been stolen or anything. Everything's in order. So when she says he did exactly what I thought he would, that's an indictment of his loyalty. Yeah. It's sad how it plays out, but ultimately, yeah, he kind of chose Mars over Earth in that moment. Right. Because he didn't want to, if they go to war, then there's no way he gets to retire on Mars without being an official traitor to Earth. Yeah. It's over. Yeah. It's sad. Poor thing. Um, you have any more thoughts on Avasarala? I, I feel like, was she only in episode three? Or was this just really spread out between two episodes? Episode four was really focused on the Donager. Mm. Um, I, I want to say we do get a scene where she is um, laying on her roof and her oh grandchild God, yeah. comes out and sits with her. Oh my god, she oh my does. god, oh my god, oh my god, oh my yes, god. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> we are telegraphing something so hard. Oh my god. She Woo! says that she worries about people who throw rocks. And we actually see her do this a couple times throughout season one and season two, which is just kind of sit on the roof and watch the sky. And for a while, for some people, that would just be sky gazing. This is Avasarala really like working out her anxieties because she is truly terrified that either the belt or Mars, someone from out there will attack earth. Yeah. This is her, you know, doing her watch. And we learn later. I don't think this is a huge spoiler. Is it? (laughs) Uh, You can say it and we'll cut it out if it's not, or if it is. We find out that Avasarala really does not like, trips in space even if it's just traveling to luna i think that's okay i think we can say that yeah and i think this scene kind of gives us context she's terrified of space of what it holds Mm -hmm. and what it could do so she says something like you know i worry about people who throw rocks it's no go ahead no, I was going to say the way you say that actually makes me feel a little bit bad for her. I know I'm usually on the offensive when it comes <laughs> to her. Like, I rarely have something nice to say about Avasarala, but, um, you know, I, I can imagine being in that position of someone who's essentially inherited the legacy of Earth 
Um, and you're, you've inherited this world where there are people in space, there are people on Mars, and none of them like you. Um, and they would do anything in their power to unseat you. And I can imagine the sort of anxieties that come with that and the fears mm-hmm. that come with that. Not to say that, you know, that uh, is a justification for her entire point of view, which I don't right. really always agree with, but it does give you a sense of why she's so on edge all the time, why she's so scared of war with um, with Mars, because you could almost, it's almost like the one advantage that the belt has is that if one home gets destroyed, there are, you know, many more across the asteroid belt. But if Earth is destroyed, which... That's it. Would take a lot of rocks, I feel like I should say. But, you know, if Earth is Earth is already on its way out, it doesn't take... It won't... I don't think it'll take much more to really, you know, make it unlivable. And that's mm-hmm. what she's... And, you know, as much as I... as she She's definitely accountable, held accountable for certain things, but I don't think she should, needs to be held accountable for, like all of the failures of earth and these are sort of the problems that she's inherited where it's like you live on a planet that is dying you live in a system where your relevance is fading um what does that mean like what what's going to happen in 10 20 years and that's stuff that she is really concerned about um just to let's keep it cute before quote, we get to spoilers <laughs> her grandkid says nobody could throw rocks that big so, I mean, Officer Rala, maybe you need to relax. Mm, maybe. Anyway. But do we have anything left for Earth? Nah, I'm good. Let's get to series. Series I mean, was kind of a waste of my time, although I'll say. I mean, my big thing with this is, like, it. not only does it feel like two episodes, but with Miller stuff, I'm like, this could have been a single episode plot. This, like, what is this man's name? Busy, but whatever. I'm like I don't care. I don't care about yeah. this, like the 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 body modifications, and he, he doesn't even find the the man until I think the end of the third episode. So it's only yeah. in the second half that like we get all the other stuff. Um, I mean, I honestly don't even have that many notes for series. I you know it's sad what happens to Havelock. I think uh, yeah, that's rough. You know, I don't know if he warranted that. <laughs> he was a nice man. You know, he's trying to learn Belter culture, which is interesting. Um, what he's else? He's a sweet guy. Um, yeah. I think every episode thus far, series' first scene starts off with the speechmaker emphasizing Belter oppression. Mm. But in this episode, they tell him to stop, and he does, but then he just walks further down the street <laughs> and starts again. I love that. And you know what I realized? You can't keep three, a good man down. Episode three is when we meet Anderson Dawes. How did we forget this? It, well, first, I don't know if we did because I oh. didn't check my man in the um, intro. So. I, I don't recall. Uh, the man, the myth, the legend, Jared Harris. Grace is also... And I, I should say, I didn't he know... He came through in that V-neck and he commanded the screen. I have to say, I didn't know who this man was until he was on The Expanse. And now that, like, I kind of know a little bit more about him, I understand the weight of his 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 guest star. Um, just, like, you know, I don't have much to say about him as, like, a character. I just like watching Anderson Dawes on screen. Um, 
like Jared Harris is just so good and like it's just it's just enjoyable I think he's great yeah um, Miller's you know Miller was very comfortable once again in Julie's place mm, yeah toes all in the couch um we hear them say Rossi Burt a few times. That series is Red Light District. Yep. Um, not a fan of Miller's not girlfriend. Her taste. <laughs> she Miller sees her with this man who kind of looks like a futuristic Magnum PI. Oh my goodness. Um, I love I that. I always wish that uh, Moss could do more. Just because, like, I I just I like her as a person but i hate her role as a character i really like especially with the riots and everything and and the way that miller's like oh you could just take over you know he's kind of like i just i just don't like their dynamic and that will really color my perception of miller where it's just i just don't like you know hyper competent woman with like deadbeat man essentially um i do think their dynamic has potential to be interesting but only in the context of like miller's aspirations Mm -hmm. towards earth because at some point he asks her for advice on julie and she says something like oh so you came to the rich earther girl and he's kind of like i mean yeah Mm -hmm. so if we were to view it through the lens of how we're seeing him and Julie, like as an access point to sort of earther privilege, then potentially I wonder why they how they got together and why they broke up. Yeah. If he was kind of doing the same thing with her that we see him doing with Julie. But it's not something that gets touched on all that much. Yeah, I think we're just putting too much of our feelings into a character that, like, does not have that much to do outside of the season. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it is what it is. More women would always be nice. And I'll leave um, it at that. We meet a Mormon. Oh, we do. Um, the oh, Mormons Mormon. make you realize that you don't really see people wearing white much in this show. Oh, um, wait, aside from the who cares about the Mormons? We meet Fred. Hold I mean, on. I was getting there. Damn. I thought we was wrapping up series. Damn. Hold on. He's not even on series. Hold on, everybody. Let's get yes, ourselves so together. Poor. If oh. you could see the way this woman is like adjusting herself, she's preparing to really dig in. So, I mean, it's only one se- yeah, let's listen. Screw the Mormons. Let's move on to Frederick. Uh I'll let you go. I'll I'll I've set the stage. Frederick Lucius Johnson. You bet. Um, the man the legend. He's a fun guy. <laughs> I re- I'm going to be honest with you girl. I have one note for Fred Johnson and it says what? we're introduced to Fred Johnson. His power play with the Mormon rep tells us that he's connected. He's got a lot of power. Um, in story, why is it important for him to stay on the Naboo project? Uh, is that a, a question or is that a... It is a question. I like, I understand. I understand he doesn't want to be kicked off the project. 
is it just because it's insulting and he's, you know, going to throw his weight around? Or is there a specific reason that he is so like, no, I'm going to be on this? I, I think it's a sense of like, and this is, I'm basing this off of a line from season three from a character in season three. Mm-hmm. Um, who basically says we've built this and now they can't ignore us. So ah. I base it off of that, which is like, this is a huge project, which has never been done before. And so if the belt can essentially prove that they can do these kinds of things, then they become more self-sufficient. Um, they also sort of, you know, in Fred's eyes, earn their seat at the table. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I really feel like he's so obsessed with um, staying on the Nivu project. I mean, that's about the extent of what I have to say. About well, it. I just want to say that we should, you know, we should really uh, recognize, we should just be ready. You know what I mean? We should just be ready. But I, that scene, I mean, it's, it's only one scene, but I, I, I think that's a really good summation of like who, how we'll understand Fred in the next few mm-hmm. episodes. Um, he can pretty much switch in the blink of an eye. Um, yes. and it's really scary how he switches, um, especially like that. There's this like one shot of like I don't know what it's called, but the little cart that they're like taking across the ship, and like mm-hmm. as it slows down, um, keeping in mind they're like in the middle of space, attached to some rail, um, and it's just like you're stuck in this. This man is stuck in this box with Fred Johnson, um, has no idea what could happen, and now he's being threatened. So it's just oh yeah, he he was shook. He was not ready for that. <laughs> so, um, you know, just the eeriness that that gives off, I think, is very Fred-like. I'm just excited about Fred. And, uh, you know, because they're in this, like, glass elevator in space, sometimes when threatening scenes happen and you can, like, see, you know, the expanse of yeah. space out there, it makes it that much more menacing. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that was a good scene. I don't have much else to say about Fred, I, I admit, but let's all get ready for him. Him and, wow, Fred and Anderson Dawes being introduced in the same episode. That's a little bit iconic, you know? Just a tad, just a tad. Oh, actually, it's two different episodes, but that's okay. They're back to back. I mean, like we said, this is like one big episode for us, so. Exactly. You have any more thoughts? Just about- in general? Yes. Um, I think it's fun, interesting that Earth's life expectancy is apparently 123 years now. Mm. Fun. Um, Would you like Lopez... to 123 years? Oh, God, no. <laughs> I feel like I'm checked out at 80. I feel like I would be giving myself a lot to say 80. Like, I don't want to take this to a dark place, but I'm only in my 20s and I'm already tired. So <laughs> we'll see how far we get. I'd like to rest above all. If I'm going to make it that long, I'd, I'd like to be comfortable. Those last 20 years need to just be spent like in bed, traveling, vibing, relaxing. Um, any... Um, Naomi's the best liar out of everybody, according Naomi's to Naomi's the best, period. That's it. <laughs> um... Um, sometimes you have to kill to preserve is something that is said yeah. in episode four because mm-hmm. belters are disposable and they have to be, you know, quelled and cut so everyone can move on. Yep. 
if I was going to die in space, I think immediate decapitation sounds good. Just so you, you know, no suffering. Yeah. It sucks for the people who have to see it. But at that point, <laughs> it's not really my problem. So yeah. I do have some very quick book thoughts. Please tell us. Um, None relevant to the Doniger necessarily. But in the books, near his interrogation, Holden mentions at some point that like kids at school would bully him for being a tax break baby with eight parents. <laughs> and it's so fucking funny to me, girl. <laughs> like, I don't even feel bad for him, but it's just really entertaining for me to watch his interrogation and think that part of his attitude is coming from being asked for like the 10,000th time in a different way. In whom did you gestate? Oh my goodness. I mean, Holden definitely gives off I was bullied energy. <laughs> oh. In the book, Holden is like, all of them are le- a lot less combative when they're taken onto the Doniger. Mm-hmm. But specifically for Holden, I feel like we see more differences between him and his book counterpart. And I wonder if this is a decision that's conscious or if it's really just about like conflict makes better tv yeah i mean i think we can say in general that like the show actually makes these characters real characters Mm -hmm. and i think that like i don't mean that as like a shade to the books i mean like in the Mm -hmm. books they're really just there for support and the show is like well we have to fill up this time right Uh, it's the difference in like we have to give a point of view to each person versus right we have two point of views for this entire book. Right. And you could say that makes for better TV, but I think it's fair to say like the book would have benefited from if the book was intending to like take the perspective of more than two people, the book would have benefited a lot more. And I think in general, as I was reading it, I was like, everybody is so agreeable and I don't understand why. <laughs> um, like we're in a crisis. Right. Like literally, I remember, I don't, I think it was the Donagers scenes that I was reading and I was like, everybody is just too calm right now. Um, So I like that the show took it in a different direction. And I believe the, the authors have said that with the show, they're, they essentially are approaching it of like, here's what we uh, wish we had done. Um, right. And so that's what I assume a lot of these changes stem from. But that that's about what i have what about you me too then let's roll um to the music roll to the music and then we can wrap up with our here's where we are now (laughs) this is what you missed on the expanse um it's really short on the music the biggest first of all i've lost half my notes so if for episode four anybody listening to this has any tracks that they remember were being played um, feel free to tell us. But there are two tracks for episode three. Um, remember the can't. One is called Ready to Talk, which is after everybody gets interrogated and they start fighting and Holden says, I'm ready to talk to the captain. Um, self-explanatory. Um, there is also Remember the Can't. So we didn't talk a lot about the riots on series, but I don't think there's much to say um, besides it is certainly depicted in a certain way, which I think is a little different from how we have seen riots in real life, at least in our country. I don't want to speak for other countries as this is a pretty internationally developed story. 
Um, so the first half plays during the riots on series. The second half plays sort of toward the end of Officer Alla's conversation with DeGraff and into um, the follow-up where after the riots, Miller finds um, Busy Bateko, the, the dead hookup from Julie, um, finds this man in the streets. And that's really the two tracks. That little um, arpeggio that I was talking about in the first two episodes um, that you can hear. And if you don't know what an arpeggio is, please refer back to your notes. <laughs> um, if you want to hear the example, I uh, you can hear it in the track Hostage. Uh, so in this episode, that little sequence plays a couple times. Um, it plays when... Officerella is talking to DeGraff about Mars and the OPA and her fears about war. Um, it also plays uh, after Miller finds that dead guy in the end of the episode. So I, I don't know if I've said this already or if I will say it, but this little sequence I think is is a is a motif for sort of the larger events um, about the story as a whole, as opposed to any particular character or arc. Um, mm-hmm. it, like it allows us to sort of take a step back and look at how everything is sort of coming together. Right. That's fun. We love that. And that's it. And then we can move on to Oh, this is not here's what you missed on Glee. <laughs> it sure is. I and as usual I've uh, lost half my notes. So I'm going to do my best. Um it's uh so it sounds like really the newest information that we learn in these two episodes is that on Phoebe station, something happened that killed everyone. Um, and Mars believes it was deliberate because of the way things played out, um, that it was sort of a test. And because like computer cores disappeared and, and people were like frozen against the walls, all this stuff, something happened on Phoebe and they don't know why or what or whatever. And that's why they're so freaked out when they capture Holden and the crew on the Donager because they think Holden had something to do with Phoebe Station. So that's everything on Phoebe Station, which will uh, come into play a little later. Um, As a recap of what we had learned in the previous two episodes, there's a lot to do with Julie Mao, uh, who at one point was on the Scopuli, which is the same ship that that sent a distress call to the Canterbury, where Holden and the crew responded to the distress call, which we learned was bait in some way, and then uh, the Canterbury was blown up. And on top of that, there's also um, this weird connection between the OPA and Martians because some OPA member was smuggling Martian stealth tech. Um, But as far as we know, by the end of these four episodes, Mars and the OPA are not working together. Mars, as far as we know, doesn't have intentions to take power so then the real questions at the end of this is what's happening on phoebe station and who is behind these ships that destroyed the donager and the canterbury um and that's what you missed on the expanse boom so um enjoy these i wouldn't call them super sized these decently sized episodes And we are honestly still going to give you long episodes for there because we have a lot to say. This is where the season kind of picks up. 
this is really where it kicks off, I think, when I try to sell people on the show. Mm, honestly, I just keep moving the goalposts. <laughs> I'm like, you just got to get to episode four, you know? Then well, it's you just like, got to get to season two. <laughs> exactly. Wait and then once you're in season two, I'm like, you don't even know how crazy season three is. You don't know what you don't know. I will say, I think the season two finale, if by the point, like, and I'm being serious, if by the time you get to the season two finale, you're not interested in the show, there is no point. Because that, to me, is like a peak, a huge peak. Now, I love the season two finale, but I'm going to tell you to ignore, listen, ignore whatever Nina's telling you. If you watch season three, episode eight, the iconic, it reaches out, and then you still don't have interest. Then you can quit. This is ridiculous. You got to appreciate the art as it comes. And we can't put all our hopes. That's like saying wait till season five. Like, come on. I don't let's, care. I'm going to be honest with you. Let's get it together, everybody. <laughs> Listen, some, y'all need to build up, you know, strength, the wherewithal. We sat through. And I'm not going to say sat through like I don't love this show because I do. But, this but season... what happens in seasons three and four You've earned it. They've <laughs> earned it because of the first two seasons. So, whoa! I don't appreciate you lumping the first and the second season together. I think there's a sharp difference in quality. And I'd I say mean, this, at this, this point, point we've season one. <laughs> but we've established that you know, I don't know how things are going to go in season two. I suspect we're going to have a few more disagreements than we did for season one. Mm. So we'll see how it goes. I mean, I like season two. My biggest criticism is that sometimes the story feels a little disjointed. And we go down things that I don't personally care about as much. Okay. 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 All right. I see. I see where this is going. I think it's time to end this episode. Y'all, she's good. She's about to be. Listen, as soon as I don't even want to stop recording. because She's going to be <laughs> so mean to me. <laughs> Thank you for tuning in. To this supersized episode of Who Owns the Stars. Next time you hear us, we will be covering episode five, Back to the Butcher. And we'll see you then. And we both have a lot to say about it. <laughs> Bye. Bye.